host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my buddy Joe Smith. Joe, what's going on, man? Hey, not too much. How's everything going with you? It's good. It's good also to have you on the show. Uh, remarkably, the first time somehow after all these years. So uh, excited to to finally chat and finally get you on the program and uh, get some good stuff. Uh, you've been writing some some fantastic pieces for the Minnesota Wild. I'm, I'm kind of curious about the adjustment for you going from um, you know covering the Lightning beat for years, especially for such a successful team, winning all those cups and playing so many meaningful games, and then jumping jumping ship and and moving on to uh, to covering a new team in the Wild here. Yeah, it's it's been great so far. Um, you know, obviously I had, a, had an amazing time in Tampa, covered the Lightning for ten years. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, a couple Stanley Cups and like, you know, four Cup Finals, five Cups Finals. So made my, made the summers go extra long uh, on that end. But obviously to be cover a Golden Age of Lightning hockey uh, with those fans was, was 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 great. But I think what I've enjoyed um, with the next chapter here is kind of having a blank canvas of of stories that I can look look at in for different angles and maybe. My colleague Mike Russo has done it so well for twenty years, um, and that was kind of part of the the allure of of changing beats and 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 moving was kind of a you know challenging and re- reinvigoration, whatever you want to call it, um, and taking your um, you know your passion to another place, a really passionate hockey market uh, in Minnesota. So, which I found that pretty quickly here. So, um, like you mentioned, it's been fun to kind of dig right in and uh, build some new relationships with the players and the front office and. And I kind of learned more about an organization I didn't really know too much um, about uh, until I started uh, working in here. Well, I, that's a good segue for us. I really want to talk to you specifically right off the bat, and then we'll get into sort of the team performance and individual components of it as well. But the reason, the genesis for why we wanted to do the show together was you've written a couple pieces recently about sort of, you know, the, the off-ice perspective of how the wild um, sort of use information and data to, to make decisions, right? Whether it's uh, monitoring kind of rest and p- fatigue and the pros and cons of that and in terms of dictating how often they're practicing or, you know, from the analytics side specifically like player evaluations and trades and signings and all that. I'm really kind of curious for kind of how, how that all sort of comes together and hopefully we can pull the curtain back a little bit here for the listeners and, and provide some insight in terms of like getting that glimpse because, you know, teams are typically so... Um, tight-lipped or shut off about this stuff like they're very careful about what information they provide in that regard it's almost silly like everyone is doing some some sort of variation of it but for whatever reason when you try to get get teams or executives to talk about it and they're acting as if they're like totally like it totally changing the game and redefining everything and doing some like unique trade secrets that they can't possibly share uh but i think you, you did a really good job of sort of kind of illustrating some of those things that the wild are doing that might be slightly unique to them compared to the other 31 teams. Yeah, I was, well, I was lucky. First of all, I mean, back in Tampa too, they were pretty open with, with access wise and kind of showing um, kind of beneath, back behind the curtain of how it works. I did this like a, on the sports psychologist for the bubble. I did something on their analytics. Um, you know, Michael Peterson, one of the pioneers of it, um, you know, followed a scout around for a weekend to see how they do that. So, and I was I was curious at how the wild would be um, in their organization, and they were open from the get go. Um, you know, I I was curious since it's always perceived that Dean Evason and Billy Guerin are really old school type guys, and just from what their backgrounds and their playing career, and they still are in a lot of ways. But I was really uh, surprised, kind of, to see how open they are to data driven decisions and that kind of collaboration and quote unquote new age way of thinking. 
Um, and the practice one, the practice story you mentioned was just brought up because it, they rarely practice, right? And as a writer, that's when your most access points are to the team. And you're just, I was surprised to see how many times they canceled it, uh, which is good for sometimes because you don't have to go to the rink, but hmm. uh, you're also wondering how that works. And, and fans are like, why are they practicing? They just lost five to two. What's the deal? And um, when D. Davison mentioned, you know, they talked to Matt Harder, their strength and conditioning coach, and how much they collaborate with the data, I was like, kind of piqued my interest. And so I just got to sit down with Matt and look at the kind of the data and like kind of the, the program that they use first beat to chart um, the, you know, the heart rate monitors that they all wear for practices, for gym workouts, and trying to find, uh, maximize their effort without going overboard and kind of preventing injuries and preventing overwork. Um, and so they get to stay in that best performance. Um, so things I didn't know about before. I know other teams do it, not not just them, but of course. I was just, you know, kind of curious how that worked and they were pretty open with sharing kind of even a, even a detailed page of what a player's chart looks like uh, on a game day. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious for this then, like spinning it forward. Uh, I know I think clearly they don't necessarily have the luxury of this for the rest of the season because it seems like they're going to be uh, you know, in a very tight playoff race with a number of teams, but taking it a step further, like a conversation that we've seen really uh, bubbling to the surface now in the NBA, for example, is, uh, you know, the idea of load, load management and kind of like stars sitting out games and the, the cons of that being, you know, if you're a fan, you get one or two chances every year to see a out of out of market star that comes to your city and you buy tickets well in advance and they're incredibly expensive for a lot of these families it's like uh, a once a year or once every couple of year luxury and then you get to the game and you realize the player you came to see is is taking the night off and resting and 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 how kind of crappy of a situation that can be right but a lot of these teams from what i gather in the nba have mapped out well in advance pretty much at the start of the year even before the year kind of these like um these spots in the schedule where they're going to intentionally rest their stars because they either have a you know condensed schedule, they have a bunch of games in a short period of time, or or they feel like they can just get an edge that way. And we don't really see that in hockey, of course, right? Like you almost need a limb to be falling off your body to be taking some of these games off. And I'm curious, taking it a step further, then it's one thing to you know cancel a practice and be like, all right, listen, the players are. Uh, you know, are, are in the red here. There's some fatigue concerns. We're concerned that we're pushing them too much and they might be at a higher risk of injury. So we're going to take the practice off. I wonder if it would ever get to the point where you would actually notice that a player might be struggling in that regard and giving them a game off to, to sort of get right. Like, I, I, it feels like we're still a very far away, away from that in the NHL, but I'm curious if that's sort of the next logical step of applying that information to actually sort of save players from themselves. It could be. I mean, depending on how overworked or what the person's, maybe it's more so based on injury. So like Austin Matthews sit out a few games um, for yeah. quote-unquote minor injury. Now he's out for a few weeks. Um, and I think, I don't know if the Wild will have that luxury this year because they'll be up against it for a crazy playoff uh, race uh, in the West in the Central Division. But I've asked John Cooper a number of times when I was in Tampa because they would always have their playoff spot pretty much locked up. Right now they're pretty much set in to play Toronto in the first round. It's two months away. And he was always against um, load management. He said, first of all, the players don't want it. The players want to play. They want to keep the rhythm, you know, whether it's goaltenders or, or or players. And they have that competitive streak. And also, too, the randomness of the injuries in the sport. Like, you could rest a guy on Tuesday against Nashville, and then his next game takes a shot off the foot, and he's hurt, too. Yep. I think in basketball, there's more tend to be those muscle groin injuries that you would have based upon, quote-unquote, overwork or you know, that kind of thing versus hockey, where it's just, 
guy could be in tremendous shape and all of a sudden just randomness and like the the bouncer a hit or this here and they're gone so um you know i think hockey might be different probably be more of a slow adapter to that stage but i do think in this instance when you have a player who's dealing with maybe a nagging lower upper body injury that isn't wouldn't in a playoff situation have him out of a game it's a good idea i guess with them to to sit him out an extra game and also the cap is a concern too if you have enough cap space to have an extra guy to play most teams have an extra forward or defenseman but um i think that's another other issue that my teams might have if they want to rest multiple star players on a certain day yeah well it's interesting that you bring up both the austin matthews example and and the your the former team you used to cover in the lightning because they're pretty much like statistically locked to play each other in round one all that's up for debate really is is who's going to have home ice in that series but it'll be fascinating to see if uh if there's some kind of you know, nagging injuries or nicks and bruises as some of these players are sitting out games in, in March and April to, to get ready for that matchup. Um, okay, so there's that component of it. There's also, uh, you wrote about sort of the, the analytic staff and how on the surface it looks lean, but how they sort of integrate some of this information. And, and I think most importantly, um, work in unison, right? Like it's, it's, it's not, a lot of the issues that crop up is every team at this point has at least someone on staff that is doing some of this stuff. But a lot of times it can be a situation where, all right, you have someone running the numbers or putting together reports or 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 doing the work, and then it gets passed along to the higher-ups, and then they kind of look at it and it's, all right, well, this kind of goes against what we wanted to originally do. It doesn't confirm our bias that we already had in place, and so we're not going to really regard it. We're just going to go elsewhere. And it really seems like in this case, from from the picture you painted, that the Wild are much more in lockstep in terms of um, whenever there is a decision to be made, whether it's an extension, whether it's a player to target, whether it's, all right, we're at a crossroads, should we do this or that? They're they're legitimately considering some of this stuff in helping guide the decision. Definitely. And, uh, you know, our friend and my colleague, Shannon Goldman, does a great job tracking analytic staffs around the league. And when I saw there was only one person on there for the while, I think that's been a kind of the fans have always kind of nitpicked been like hey like you know why aren't we doing this or why don't they want to spend the money or do this and um i just been around the team enough and traveling you saw their analytics person matt sells always on the road he's always with them uh, on the coaching staff and so i got a chance to sit down with them for a couple hours and really dug deep into his history with hockey canada and um how he got to the wilds and um you know john cooper actually pushed for him um and kind of come to tampa and actually got a job in minnesota but um yeah i think analytics are important and they're in part of every team's fabric but they're used differently and in this case it is something that's used all the time in every decision that they make not an end-all be-all but it's all a factor in their decisions right you know you want to have those conversations and so he matt sells is in the coaches meetings the day after a game and they you know the first thing they'll ask is what how to look at the numbers wise what what did you see and you know ask how they how to look hockey wise and a lot of these things are based upon like you know the numbers that Kale and Addison were bad, or what we think of Kale and Addison, he didn't really play well. All the numbers confirm that he let these number of rushes in off off his blue line on this side. And um, not only does it affect kind of you know lineup decisions, like you can tell when a player is trending the wrong way, so you can kind of stop it from going other dire- that direction and help them and teach them and show them clips on certain things between games where it doesn't get to the point where it's finally there. Same with with the team. If the team is winning, but their numbers and the how the below the surface stuff isn't good. They can kind of say, okay, well, we're winning, but we're not shouldn't be winning, and this is what we need to work on in practice, um, all the way up to, you know, the free agent contracts, the extension for Matt Bully that they signed, 
looking at models and, and regression models and seeing what that can do. So um, even talking to Bill Guerin and Dean Evison, both old school guys, they've they've been open to it. Um, not a VL end all, but it's something that's really important that they factor in for daily decisions um, for good or bad. I really, I really hope we reach a day where the disclaimer of it's not the be all end all doesn't need to be applied to this stuff because I, yeah. I really think like no one, no one is suggesting otherwise, right? Like even myself, yeah, that's, yeah. Who looks at this stuff. I, I'm also like the way you, the way to use it and the way I think any sort of, uh, you know, respected or serious analyst would is you look at something, you identify a trend or you're like, oh, that's weird. And even sometimes, you know, Marcus Foligno had a quote in your piece about how like, oh, well, if it confirms what we're seeing, like then why not use it? Right. And and for me, it's actually much more interesting when it goes completely against what I think I'm seeing, right? I watch a game, all of a sudden a player's performance or a team's performance looks entirely different from what I've been watching. And then you go back and, and rewatch the tape or individual shifts of players and you try to sort of actually identify what's happening here. Is it purely an anomaly or something the numbers aren't picking up? Or is there something that just, you know, on a cursory glance when you're watching a million games every single night, you didn't pick up? And so... Sometimes it's almost more interesting to me what it what it pushes back against your pre-existing beliefs as opposed to just confirming what you already knew because otherwise it's it's not that useful if it's like all right I already think X and then it just proves it so it's like well what good was that we could have just done without it at that point and I think what they use a lot and what players told me that they use a lot is for the um, pre-scout other teams right um, that's where they find the most value in it versus their individual numbers is kind of what the Anaheim Ducks do off the rush. What do they do? Where do their power play chances usually come from? Where like, are they good on dump ins and retrievals? Are they not? And those are things that they really harp in on the pregame meetings after uh, pregame meetings after the skate. And those are ones that those always remember. Um, so those are really helpful, I think, in any team um, for that basis. So I think that was interesting to me and just how each, how Matt sells is part of coaches meetings. And it's not just he's up in the ivory tower and sending down numbers in a spreadsheet and all of a sudden it's getting to some people, some people listen, some people don't. They're actually having those conversations about it versus just, Bill Garrett never gets reports, never gets a, a, a bunch of papers and a, right. and a pamphlet that says this is what it is. They have these conversations. He said, what do you think about this guy? What should we sign him? What, how's he going to look in three years? And he'll give them the honest opinion. That's how it'll go. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think sort of condensing that information into actual actionable items, whether it's for the GM or for the coach or for the player is is incredibly valuable and being able to sort of speak that common language is huge right i think you had a, your point there about how matt is you know sort of differentiating between like all right you look at the raw numbers and that sort of tells you the the what of how how of what like what happened on the ice and then maybe you're looking you're you're kind of peeling back a layer and you're looking at some of the the tracking data that we unfortunately don't have publicly still at this point that might paint a, or shine a better light on sort of the why or the how it happened and i think for players that like it, it's useful for them to know that okay we're gonna go and play a play against the national predators today these are the tendencies this is what they do but then i think almost being able to identify the way in which they're gonna go about to do it is much more valuable from a player perspective because then when they're on the ice they can sort of identify if they're leaning a certain way or they're doing a certain thing and sort of know ahead of time like okay this is what i can kind of keep an eye out for and what i can prepare for yeah, definitely. I mean, the why is, is so important and, and an interesting conversation with, with Matt Sells about it. And I asked him about what percentage of analytics or, or data is public versus what teams have available to them through player tracking. And he estimated about 1% or 2% of analytics are part of 
data for hockey is available public. And he said, it's incredible what people, uh, could do with all the sites that are out there. And, um, you know, my friend and colleague Don does great work with that too. Everybody, uh, he sees like, he really wishes that it does be, it would become more public, the player tracking, uh, puck tracking, because he goes to be more collaboration, more innovation, a league wide. And he said, there's no reason for just because we do it one way and another team does another way. It's all proprietary now because those things are kind of secret behind the scenes because they're puck tracking, but he said he would be open to it being public and think about how much more the league can learn and how much more teams can learn um, based upon all the smart minds that are out there. They're not hired by teams. Yeah, the I, from what I've, I've gathered, the expected goals models in particular, like wildly vary. And, and you know, I, I'll freely admit that I'm, I'm pretty skeptical myself of a lot of the public ones because we've kind of transitioned past the point of they did they did a good job for a while of identifying like the geography of where a shot was coming from but unfortunately now there's so many layers to it in terms of teams like working the cross ice action with the pre-shot movement and and incorporating all of that to their game and and acknowledging that all right like as a defender defender how close you are to the person taking the shot is going to impact how good of a shot they get and none of that is is baked into our current data and so it's pretty clear that adding those sort of inputs as well is going to completely change the final result. And so on the one hand, I think it's much better than not using it at all, but it, it's pretty clear that there's levels to it and there is still kind of a, a way to go. So I'm, I'm really curious about how each team sort of navigates that. And I think it's interesting for me just as as a writer and for you too, and like how much do you use it? How much do you use it based upon in your stories? Like how much um, I don't want to get it too bogged down into all the numbers, but I think there's numbers that are very useful that can paint a picture or that can maybe be contrarian. Like you said, all oh, the team looked bad, but this is what the numbers actually showed, or this is what this line might have looked like they were hemmed in, but they actually had this possession time and all this other thing like that. So uh, I think I, I grappled with that over the years, trying to incorporate more data into my reporting than I did before, maybe five years ago. Um, but it's still a process for me, and I know for Mike as well. Um, just to figure out how much do fans want. So there's certain fans who don't want a lot of that, but certain fans who will eat it up. And so you kind of have to find that balance of which, uh, how much to use uh, in your story if you're doing game reporting or features on a certain player kind of thing. Well, Russo's a big analytics guy. Everyone knows that. <laughs> um, no, well, here's a, here's, a, here's a great example for you. So Matt Boldy, with him on the ice this season at 5-1-5, the Minnesota Wild have 54% of the expected goals, according to natural stat trick, right? They've scored 47% of the actual goals when he's on the ice. Now, if you're not looking at the numbers and you're just purely looking at his plus minus or, or or just looking at just only goals being scored, you're like, man, Matt Boldy, like they just gave him a seven by seven deal and they're getting outscored with him on the ice. What's going on there? And then you just it, one cursory look at the on ice shooting percentage and it's like, all right, they're scoring on less than 7% of the shots they take with them. That's probably not reflective of Matt Boldy's true talent level. I'm sure that'll mm -hmm. come up. And once that does, a lot of the concerns I think are going to be alleviated and the the perspective is entirely going to shift and there's going to be some hindsight of like, oh, well, this was never an issue, but clearly like these fluctuations in, in things players can necessarily control themselves is I think a very valuable application of some of this stuff. And there's stuff of like what the line, who their line mates are, had they moved around a bit last year was Kevin Fiala. It was a pretty safe line mate for him for half the season. And this year there he's bounced around different people. Marco Rossi used to be on with them. And then, you know, now it's, uh, I think Felino is with them, you know, so kind of, you know, that thing's injuries, like obviously shooting percentage, like you mentioned. Um, so, you know, I think the deal will end up being a good one, you know, just from knowing what I know about Matt Boldy will be a good one, but it is kind of 
crazy to think about giving a 21 year old that much with that, you know, that little kind of service time, quote unquote, in AHL. So, um, but when you're in the salary cap world, you make those decisions and those educated bets on players. And I think maybe in a few more years when the cap goes up and all of a sudden he's a, you know, 25 goal scorer, then uh, it won't be thought of as that differently. Well, here's a stat for you. There's been 133 forward combos in the league this year who have played at least 100 minutes together at 515. Matt Boldy is not on any of those. I think the most common uh, trio that he's been with is is Freddie Goudreau and, and Ryan Hartman, and they play like 90 minutes or something together. Yeah. And and yeah, that, I think that's a great point. Like I think, especially for a young player, having stability or certainty in your line mates, and not to mention the, ta- the talent level of them, going from a Kevin mm-hmm. Fiala to, to inferior talent level players, still grinders, but different skill sets, is huge. And, and I think that's shown by the fact that, I mean, it's remarkable that he has one primary assist at 515 this season in 600 yeah. minutes like that. And to me, I actually think of him, I, I know there's like a, been a big talking point of like, he needs to be more assertive and shoot more. And, and his shot rate is actually going up this year, but I, I actually think he's going to be a very good playmaker. And I, I think that's just like entirely random. Like there's no way if you replay these 600 minutes that he ever has one primary one assist. Primary assist. It's, it's like impossible. It's almost a, it's like a statistical aberration that is just not going to happen again. And so I, I'm not worried about him. I'll, I understand. It's like, all right, well, his raw accounting stats aren't that great. He's played less than 100 games, but betting on the skills that, that he's shown so far to me is is such a no-brainer. Like a lot of the subtle stuff he does, Joe, uh, whether it's the like how much of a menace he is on the forecheck and just making life a living hell for opposing defensemen trying to get the puck out of their zone, or like getting the puck off the wall himself and making plays for others. Like these are things that I think everyone that plays with him. He's gonna love playing with Matt Boldy because he just he just does these like little things that help tilt the ice for them and put them in advantageous positions. And so I have absolutely zero concerns about him moving forward. Yeah, I can. You watch the little things he does. Like he's just a smart player for his age. And I remember talking to his coach at USNDP, and they had that crazy good team, right? With was it Suzuki, Spencer, Spencer Knight, and um, or Paul Caulfield? Sorry, yeah, Caulfield. Yeah, oh Zegris. Uh, yeah, Zegris, and and they were all like this guy's another level and the coach was like they could he could be end up being better than all these guys you know and just shows a talent level and that whole team had but he was always a guy who always set up like he's a playmaker he was a guy who always grew, grew up as a, a setup guy and now in the nhl he can be both and there's nothing wrong with that as marty st louis showed in his career too you can be both yeah yeah i think uh very bright days ahead and i, I mean getting him for age 22 to 28 seasons like everything we know about aging curves is is those are going to be his most productive seasons. And so getting that signed is is a no-brainer. And it just brings us back to the conversation of of the team sort of application of, of some of this stuff. You know, you'd think that it would be particularly useful for the Wild above any other NHL organization for the next two or three years, considering they're working with like 80 to 85% of the budget of the other teams. And this is where a lot of the good stuff has been mined in terms of working some of these market inefficiencies and, and identifying buy lows or players that might be discarded by other teams for wrong reasons and then getting them at a discount price to help you. And, and you know, they did a good job with Sam Steele, for example, bringing him in. He's provided great bang for the buck so far. I think it's going to be incredibly crucial for them to find at least a handful of more of those uh, over these next two years while they are working at this sort of financial limitation. No doubt. Like, those, that's what moves they have to make. And... um you know, or they have to hope the guys that are on the cusp there, the Sammy Walkers or Marco Rossi's who I wrote about today, you know, could come in and play 
uh, on entry level deals and be an impact player is not necessarily top line or top six minutes, but guys who can be able to be contributed for you. Um, and they're an interesting spot to me because they have one of the top prospect pools, according to our rankings uh, in the league. Uh, they have some talented young players under contract, under contract for a long time. Yeah, but they don't. Have, they have a lot of cap space at the deadline too. They can make a big move for a rental. Um, they don't have much the next year to. Go, they have to sign all these guys this summer, so that's where the trade deadline comes into to play, where you can make a splash at the deadline for a rental, but they have to be careful. They don't want to be giving up their first round picks and their top prospects when they're still in this kind of weird window where they don't are kind of hamstrung for free agency uh, in the summertime. So um, that's a, a weird spot to be in, but they still have a really strong core and nucleus, to, but they need, I mean, obviously we would talk about, they need some, they could use some extra help in the top six, in my opinion, and they can maybe use a little help um, defensively too, but those are hard to come by unless you want to pay up for some rentals. Yeah, I can you can't take term. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can understand certainly why they'd be reticent to move any draft picks because if you look over the past four years of the way they've drafted, particularly since Judd Brackett came, to run their scouting department like they've been one of the best if not the best drafting teams in the league especially when you account for like the slots they pick from right and so uh a lot of those players probably won't be able that they wind up taking over these next couple of years won't immediately step in and help produce on any lc which is what they need but it's 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 such a valuable resource for them and it's almost like it's one of their big organizational strengths and so to be uh, to be kind of handcuffing them by moving those picks to help right now, I understand why Bulgarian would be would be very nervous about doing that. Yeah, and he and he's kind of said he doesn't want to do that. He did that up. It's plan that they're saying there's also untouchables he has in the system. Some of the top prospects, you can probably guess a few of them from Wallstat to Faber to um, other ones that are the, you know that are right on the cusp there. So uh, it's an interesting way to do it, and I'm curious to see what the market looks like after the Bo Horvat deal and other forwards that are on expiring contracts of how much they will cost if the wild did go that direction. But in my sense, they'll probably do more of a hockey trade where you'd have a roster player going one way and getting a roster player the other. Um, and, and we'll see what happens with that, whether it's a Jordan Greenway or uh, some other blue liners that can go the other way, like whether it's a Dumba or a Galagoski and, and try to make something fit. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I did a, sh- a show breakdown with uh, with your colleague Harmon Dahl yesterday on the PDO cast. We were talking about the the Bo Horvat trade, and at some point we brought up how Kevin Weeks had tweeted that any uh, you know certain NHL teams had basically come out and and expressed their displeasure with the Canucks at, at not at feeling like they weren't like fielding fair offers in terms of like giving them a chance to match or exceed what the Islanders did. And I actually thought the Minnesota Wild would have been one of them, but but based on your reporting. You've been sort of adamant pretty much the entire way that that they weren't seriously in on Horvat. They they weren't from the beginning. I mean, I think they checked in initially um, in the fall, and I think the asking price back then was was very high. Um, and I think the fact, just the fact that it makes sense on a lo- number of different levels. Number two is that they have they can't assign him to a long term deal, uh, right? And that would limit. I think Lula Marillo has an idea of signing him to a long term deal, which is why they might have given up more, but. The, the price that the Wild would have to have paid for a quote-unquote rental, um, I don't think it would have worked for them. I like like Horvat as a player. I think he's really good. I think he'd be an impactful player for a lot of different teams, but I just never got a sense that they were really in uh, and hard on him and that as far as the deal is concerned. All right, Joe, let's, uh, let's take our break here. 
And then when we come back, we'll keep chatting with you on the other side about all sorts of Minnesota Wild-related topics. You are listening to the Hockeypedia cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Vancouver sports fans. Halford and Bruff in the morning. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. video guest with Joe Smith talking about the Minnesota Wild. So, Joe, I'm, we'll talk about the deadline here in a second and some of the potential moves or motivations for the Wild. You know, I was watching the the Hurricanes-Kings game last night, and of course the, the Hurricanes came back and wound up winning the game in overtime, and the goaltending or goal suppression in particular let, let LA down once again, which has been a recurring theme this year. But over the course of that game, Kevin Piala scored a remarkable individual effort goal uh, where he came down the wing, toe-dragged it around a defender, and then went top shelf against Freddie Anderson. And just watching this year, how good he's been, in particular at 5-on-5 five five and how productive he's been, and then the struggles of this wild team at that end. Of course, you know, their hands were tied in the sense that they were kind of backed into this corner and, and they had to make the move that they did. And I thought that the return they actually got for Fiala from the Kings was was a, a very reasonable one at the time. But you look now, they're 27th in 5-on-5 scoring as a team. And that is down from from second, I believe, last year where only Florida was scoring more frequently at 5-on-5 than them. Now, part of it certainly is shooting percentage driven, right? I think they were also second in shooting percentage last year as a team, and they're down to like the 20s now. But watching this team, it's it's been quite... Uh, quite an uphill battle for them on a lot of nights to really get sustainable offense going at five on five. And I think that has to be a legitimate concern moving forward. Oh, it's, it certainly is. And I don't think anybody, I think people expected a little bit of a drop off losing Viala, the talented he is both individually and how he impacted Matt Boldy's game and vice versa. But I don't know if anybody kind of reasonably expected that kind of a drop off um, five on five. Now they've been able to just manage to survive it and find a ways Resoff's been terrific most of the time. Their power play stepped in. Special teams have been better with the penalty kill. Their goaltending um, has been better than expected with Gustafson and in Flurry and the tandem. But um, you're kind of seeing offensive regression from guys who had career years last year, right? Ryan Hartman had 33 even straight goals last year. I think he has like four or five total this year. Right. Um, you know, Eck is about similar to what he was last year, but Felino is way down. Um, you know, um, so you're looking at different guys that had, um, big time years last year at five on five, especially, uh, and the whole thought, I guess, from the wild perspective is if these guys just play their capability or maybe not won't have career years every year, but they can get more out of what they currently have. Um, and I think, you know, and part of it too has been that, you know, the top line, it it has to kind of drive the team based upon their personnel and skill set. You could have a shutdown line, the grief line, which is good, but need somebody to drive offense, and that's a lot of pressure to put on Zuccarello and, and Kaprizov. Um, and they had Hartman last year. Now they have Sam Steele, who was a great story and a pleasant surprise, but I don't think anybody would have penciled him as number one center on this team if he started the season. So they went from Tyson Yost to uh, Goudreau up there. You know, Hartman started the year there. So you basically have had four or so number one centers on that line all year long. So, you know, I don't think they're banking on the fact that Connor Dewar or Ryan Reeves is going to score 15 goals, but they need 
the reliable ones, the ones that the Greenways, the Felinos, uh, the Hartmans, uh, to really impact that. And that's I think, where the biggest difference has been five on five for them. Yeah, I, I honestly like I've watched a lot of wild games, of course, and or, or throughout the year, but I hadn't really had a chance to really let the the numbers sort of sink in until I started preparing for the show with you today. And I, I found it staggering that they don't have a single player in the top seventy of five on five scoring, right? Even Kaprizov, who has twenty three five on five points, I believe, and ten five on five goals. To put that in perspective, that's the same number of goals as Minnesota Wild legends Nick Bukestad and Nico Sturm. Um, legends, who yeah. to be fair are are pretty much. Uh, I'm still convinced the same person. So maybe uh, it's unfair to compare one Kaprizov to the two of them, but. Uh, it's 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 pretty staggering. And, you know, with Kaprizov in particular, like on the one hand, the power play has been so good and he's still been finding a way to, to generate his own offense. Like he's on pace for 46 goals and 100 points. So it's not a concern by any means. But then you look and it's like, they're just not, they're not really even scoring up to par with him and Zuccarello on the ice the way they did last year and the way you'd expect them to, right? Like, and I think that's part of the concern as well. Now I have much more, um, confidence that those guys will eventually get going at five on five and will start scoring more goals than maybe the rest of the roster. So take that into account. But yeah, even for them, it's been pretty pretty tricky. And I wonder you mentioned some of the pressure and how how much is is on their shoulders to do all the heavy lifting. I wonder if there is kind of a bit of that cumulative effect where they're just not being put in as many advantageous situations because they don't have a second line that's sort of consistently tilting the ice and you know, tiring out the other team and then allowing them to hop over the boards in situations where they can quickly strike. Like a lot of times they're going out there and they're having to sort of start from scratch or even maybe start from a deficit and eventually work their way up towards generating scoring chances. And you look look even in Tampa, like the Kucherov and point line are one of the best combos in the league, but they still had other lines that were able, like the Stamkos line or like the, even the third line when they had great third lines, to be able to kind of get the momentum and pressure where they could put at a, at a home ice, they could put the, the point Kucherov and they were on gets tired bodies and really take advantage of that. And, and there have been times this year where Zuccarello and Kaprizov have struggled, where they have forced issues, forced passes, and that's led to negative results for them. And then one thing I was curious about, might have to do a story on it, is like the whole idea going into the season was the Wild had to change a little bit in terms of they couldn't win like last year where they let, let the league in come from behind wins and they were this magical story where they outscored their problems and they're kings of overtime like that was an unsustainable model and you found out in the playoffs they had to win a harder closer game and deal with adversity and this was year was meant to make that shift um not their identity had to be changed but they had to be more towards that low scoring tight checking you know heavy team quote unquote and they have played better defensively i think the expected goal model for goals allowed is up up there among the top of the league but i don't know if that's I don't say you sacrifice offense for defense or if that's changed the way some of the guys have thought about, you know, their play and, and pinches and aggressiveness offense. I don't know if there's a way to calculate that, but that might be one way to look at why this team fundamentally five on five a year ago was really good offensively. And this year is not with the same personnel minus a, uh, a Fiala per se. I don't know if there's a way to measure that, but that's one thing that they've been trying to be better at was being better defensively and winning those low scoring games. They can't afford to play, that five four game and, and and sustain that model, which is a remarkable transformation because you watch the first five games they played this season and that was I guess your sort of inauguration to the team and and the beat right and and they give up twenty seven goals in the first five games and it's like oh, oh wow. my god like what's every game is seven five here 
And since then, I, I believe they're giving up the third fewest goals against. I think only the yeah. Bruins and Rangers are giving up less than them, which is kind of like a, it's an incredible in-season transformation. It's also like, a, it's it's a bit disappointing for me because, you know, for a while, the, for, a, for a long time, the Wild, because on, of their results and the way they played, got this rep as being like the most boring team in the league and just <laughs> trying to grind out games, right? And then Kaprizov comes along and for the first two years there or whatever, like they're one of the most exciting teams in the league to watch are playing these up-tempo, high-scoring games, and it took people a while to, to recalibrate their their priors on them and really come around to like being like, all right, I'm really enjoying watching Minnesota Wild games, and and now this, this year has been a bit of a step back in that regard, but they've needed it because, as I mentioned, with the 5-on-5 goal scoring really drying up, like if they hadn't tightened up defensively, and, and you're right, there might be some sort of like a correlation between those two, but without it, like they would they would really be in rough shape right now. They would be. That's been their saving grace and their goaltending, right? But let's say the goaltending, like after game three, my first column covering the Wild was they had a goalie crisis, right? Like, and it was it looked pretty bad at that time. You know, Flurry getting pulled. Uh, Gustafson, we didn't know much about him going into the year, but that's been a really good backbone for them. Both those guys um, taking their turns and running with it. So that's been a saving grace for them too in games where they've given up maybe those, you know, grade eight chances. They've been able to kind of save them and earn them at least a point. So. Uh, something has to give in that situation, five on five, whether it's their own I- internal options, switching up lines, which Jamison doesn't like to do very much, or maybe acquiring somebody at the deadline that you can maybe, for, one guy's not going to change the whole entire world, right? Um, but one guy can maybe help a Matt Boldy, and all of a sudden you have two lines instead of one, and then, you know, maybe a third line it doesn't isn't completely just a checking line, but it can cr- create some scoring opportunities. So um, there's some ways to do it, um, but they feel the sustainable model is being better defensively and in goal, that'll ultimately give them a better chance um, versus, you know, and getting more offensive eventually will help them. Yeah. Yeah, well, I should say, I, I noted that I think more goals will come for Boldy, similarly to Kaprizov. I have, or Sport Logic has him down for sixth in offensive zone possession time with a puck on a stick, eighth in passes to the slot, sixth in individual cycle chances. So, like, you know, they're generating more chances and expected goals with him on the ice than they did last year when they were just, they were scoring a ton of five-on-five five goals with him and Zuccarello out there. Just for whatever reason, the goals haven't uh, come in the same volume or quantity that they did. So you mentioned, let's spin kind of forward to the trade deadline then and and potential acquisitions or sort of routes they can go for improving this team. I actually think they shouldn't be um, as sort of preoccupied with the center position. Like I understand, as you mentioned, it's not ideal when you look at the list of centers that have played with the top two lines and it's like all right well this probably won't play in a playoff series but I think part of what I underrated like I actually didn't think they would miss Kevin Fiala nearly as much as they have heading into the season and I think part of what I underrated was the things he specifically did well right like he was a winger for them but he was the the primary puck transporter up the ice he was the guy who had the sort of skating ability and dynamic like dynamic quality to his game where he could take the puck and bring it to the middle of the ice and create either for himself or others and then you look at their heat map this season at 515 and part of why they're not scoring is because they don't take shots in the middle of the ice like they don't really have players that can get there there's a lot of cross ice stuff and coming from behind the net with Caprizov and Zuccarello but they don't really have a single skater up front that can take the puck from point A to point B and create and so I think it's less of a sort of priority to get a center it'd be nice if you could get one but I think for me the priority would have to be 
getting someone with skating ability who can replicate at least 50 to 75% of what Fiala did in that specific area to at least give them a bit more juice up front. No, I think it's a good point. And, you know, as far as the centers that are available that are the bigger names, quote unquote, the Tays or the Ryan O'Reilly's, you never know if they're available or or what that'll cost. But I think I do think a center would help in some instances. They're one of the lower end based off teams in the league right now. I think they're like a 46, 47%. Um, but I think you like the winger, a winger with Boldy would definitely help and it would kind of trickle down guys in the lineup to their probably appropriate positions. Um, you know, I know Patrick Kane's the biggest name, but I don't know if like Rabishev or other small uh, the, the different names out there that can maybe create um, whether it's zone entries or, or move the puck inside the slot. So unless you have some other names that you might have thought well, like the biggest teams. I have one that's really interesting. The only roadblock is there's uncertainty with his return from injury and also the fact that he makes $3 million next year. So I wonder if it would have to be a type of trade where it's like, you're moving out Greenway as well, either to a third team or to the team in question. But Anthony Duclair mm-hmm. is a is a player who just like stylistically from a skill perspective would provide a lot of what they need in that regard of five on five scoring, of the ability to take the puck from point A to point B to help make life easier for others by setting the table. All of a sudden, if he's playing on the opposite wing of, of Boldy, for example. You can allow Boldy to focus on on those in zone settings that he's great at, and and take some of the pressure off him in terms of getting there in the first place. And so, I'm not sure yet. We haven't seen him play this season, right? He's coming back from a, a torn Achilles. For a player, he's still young, but for a player who relies on his skating to come back from a torn Achilles is always scary. So I'd kind of like to see him play games first to to make yeah. sure that he still has that speed uh, that he had prior to the injury. But you know, three million for next year for a player with his skill set would be highly intriguing to me. And the Panthers are sort of in a similar spot as the Wild in terms of like financial restrictions. So I'm sure you could facilitate a deal like that. But the the fact that he's not just a pure rental for the rest of the season, but has money attached next year might be a bit tricky to navigate for them. Yeah, if you do a hockey trade, like you mentioned, a guy like a Greenway who has $3 million cap hit himself uh, could help. And I, I don't know if they can't take any term. I don't know if that's the case. They probably could take some term if it's a hockey trade where you get a guy back money in, money out. Mm-hmm. And I like to declare too, I'm curious about his health, and I'm curious also if the Florida Panthers, who still, I think, in their hearts of hearts, believe they can make a run at a wild card spot, right, where they would probably want to keep it. Maybe you keep Hornquist on LTIR uh, the rest of the regular season, and you have some more cap space. You don't have to move a declare, you know, at the deadline, like you might maybe all thought they would have to do. So... Um, but yeah, I think a player like that would be a really good fit for the Wild. Just matter if they can find the the, the trade partner that would work out um, to make that trade to um, have enough money next year to accommodate that salary. How much of your day to day is just dealing with Wild fans cooking up mad Dumba trades? <laughs> I imagine uh, yeah. it's, I imagine it's a pretty big part of the job. In the comment section, yeah, oh yeah, every, just everywhere, it, just Twitter, just the athletic articles, everywhere. Like, you know, let's trade, they're like, let's trade Matt Dumba for Bo Horvat straight up or, you know, like all these different things, you know, it's like everybody, it's funny how any fan base you are around, this is not just Minnesota Wild, but they always have this, they always overvalue players that they are sick and tired of. And so like they think the they can just get rid of this player that they hate and that they don't like and that they'll get a huge return for them. You know, it doesn't seem like it's logical at times, but yeah, I mean, he's been, I haven't been in this market for a long time, but I know that they're, uh, some fans that have been kind of tired of 
of some of the struggles that he's had and his, you know, mistakes he makes. He's not a perfect player, but he also plays 20 minutes in the penalty kill and there's a hard rule to replace internally if you want to move him, which is why I think he could end up being um, staying with the team um, past the deadline just to be their own rental. Well, Joe, he leads the team in five on five ice time, which yeah. is, it, it is, is might be surprising to people. And, and that's a tough thing. Like we saw the two games that he played. The fact that he wasn't playing wasn't the reason they lost necessarily, but it's it's yeah. really tough to replace those minutes, especially when for any flaws he has in his game, he does make contributions as well. Right. And so just purely like, regardless of how tired you are of him, or if he makes a mistake and you're like, okay, like we could do without this filling those minutes in a productive manner is is really tough right and and I, I think that can be understated sometimes as well it's it's all right you're moving them well who's stepping into those minutes and how are you accommodating them now if you could move him in a hockey trade to get a forward that could help contribute a lot of the things that we just highlighted previously that would be interesting but i think just a matter of like all right let's just trade him just for the sake of trading him seems pretty counterproductive to me considering what this team's aspirations are at least for the rest of this season they still feel like they're a playoff team. They still feel like a team that they could win a playoff series. And so, and that's why having a top four defenseman, I don't think they feel comfortable yet putting Kalen Addison into a top four. I don't think they feel comfortable on a regular basis having Goligoski or on the offside on, you know, with, with Brodeen. So that's the thing. You have to replace that person, those uh, highest five on five minutes on the team with somebody and then be productive minutes too. Um, so like this, a Luke Shen all of a sudden saw that. You put Luke Shen, if you trade for him in the top four, do you feel comfortable doing that? So all these things where you don't want to make your team worse, make a team better in one instance and make your team worse in another, which is why it's so difficult for, for GMs at the deadline, aside from the cap space situation. Yeah. Well, I don't think a move like that will help fix the team's five-on-five scoring concerns, let's say that. Um, all right. Was there anything else on the wild here that you wanted to to get to while we are chatting, while I have you here? I had a note about Jared Spurgeon. I wanted to give him a bit of love. Um, he's been terrific. Yeah. Unbelievable season. Age 33 season, the impacts that he's having out there. I mean, he's got a shot at setting new career highs in, in goals and points, of course. But you just look at him like, they've given up 24 5 on 5 goals in like 750 plus minutes with him on the ice. I mean, just remarkable season from him that is once again not being overshadowed, but just not being talked about because he's Jared Spurgeon but just like adding to the lore of what what an analytics goat he has been for for like the majority of the past decade. Well, I was asked by another writer who's doing some poll, like if, he, if it wasn't Kaprizov on the All-Star team, who would you pick? And I, Jared Spurgeon was the first guy who came to mind because he's been their best player outside from Kaprizov, our most consistent guy. But I think that's been the story of his whole career, right? He doesn't really get it all the headlines where people don't, you know, all those accolades, but he's been consistently good. And I thought, you know, one of the better times of his career but fans are like he's been this way every year every year of his career and people don't really appreciate it as much but uh for a five nine five ten defenseman um it's really incredible in this league to be that consistent that durable um makes such a smart plays with the stick smart pinches uh, a lot of things that you have to be you don't you can't go head to head with a guy in front of the net and, and push a guy in front of you to get the positioning out at the push him off from the boards make sure you don't mm-hmm. get to the front of the net so uh it's been really helpful i think they've used him's example with Kill and Addison said, Hey, watch this guy, watch Spurgeon, watch how he does it. And this is how you may not be a Jared Spurgeon, but just by taking 50% of his game and doing what he does, you're gonna be a much better player. And that's a good example to the for them to have with a uh, some younger, uh smaller defenseman like him. I love that. All right, Joe. Well let's uh I'll give you a chance here to promote some stuff because you've been busy at work, including um, you know, 
kind of cycling back to your old beat and writing about Steven Stamkos as well after his big uh, goal scoring milestone, which actually happened here in Vancouver. So I'll let you tell the listeners about that and kind of some of the other stuff you've been cooking up and working on because I'm curious to hear about it myself, actually. Yeah, like I've, you know, I've tried to take this Minnesota slash national role and do a little bit of everything. And and so on the NHL side, has Steven Stamkos' story, talking about other 500 goal scores and what that milestone means and what makes Stamkos special and if it'll be harder to get you know, as years go on in the league. Uh, we had a couple of stories this week. Rocco Rossi, update on him, talk to him and Garen and Tim Army on where he's at in his development. If that reassignment to, to Iowa can make a difference for him going forward. Uh, have a big feature on Jesper Wallstadt, um, the goalie of the future for the Wild running tomorrow uh, on The Athletic. And uh, for Lightning listeners, who, if they're out there here for this show, have several uh, Lightning features that I kind of reported while I was in town last week, enjoying the sunshine and seeing some old friends uh, that will be running around the next few weeks or so. Um, so I think that's uh, something I really enjoy going back and seeing some of the guys and, and uh, talking to some of the players there. And, and there'll be a team that... Yeah, we all could be covering for another four months again. So we'll find out. Yep, definitely. You see that clip of uh, speaking of Wallstead of, of him dancing during the uh, during the game. Is it down in so Michael Jackson. Yeah, he he's more of a rap guy, but I think he's eclectic in his musical taste. And some guys didn't know if he knew all the words to the song, but he knew the rhythm to it. So yeah, yeah, he was moving. He was uh, he was he was he was moving out there for sure. All right, Joe, this is a blast. I'm glad we finally got to connect and get you on the show. Um, for the listeners, the only thing I have to promote is uh, is the podcast you're listening to. So if you enjoyed it, go uh, go hit the five star button and leave a rating and review wherever you listen. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow with more here. So until then, thank you for listening to the Hockey PDO Cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.